Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So in addition to having Emily here, we're so very happy to have uh, Ivy uh, Pakoda here also. She is applaud. Yes. She's a big deal. <laughs> She's a big deal. She wrote the novels Wan- Wander Valley and Visitation Street. So uh, please welcome Emily and Ivy. God, holy shit. This is okay, crazy. I get to t- I get to talk first. <laughs> so um, it's not really, uh, this is the first for me. I've been here a million times. I've done tons of in conversations, but this is the first time a student of mine has published a novel to so much acclaim. I have known Emily since she was 23 years old and came to my writing workshop. The first, I think one of the first ones I taught in my uh, loft downtown. Ever, yeah. First writing class I ever took. And, um, you know, I teach all the time and uh, I can tell you that not a lot of novels come out of my workshops and I don't think that's a reflection on me as a teacher. Um, so <laughs> so it is pretty awesome to be here tonight and um, incre- I don't get nervous but I'm kind of nervous because all your parents' friends are here and they seem kind of smart and like your friends are super cool. Um, but um, uh, this is a really big moment for me as a, like, a somewhat um, mature adult and I'm so proud of you. Thank and you. Um, and I was hoping we could start by you reading some of this book, and then I will ask you some questions, but mostly I'll let them ask you questions, because they probably have more than I do. I would love that. Um, and can I say, um, can I say also that this book actually came out of a short story that Ivy was the first one to read. We read it in that like, cafe over in the there. Cafe around the corner, yeah, where Uncle Jersey used to be, and she was like, there's too much going on here. You took my first question. To now I'm going to have to rethink this sorry, whole talk. I'm sorry, okay. I'm sorry. Anyway, so blame her is what I'm saying. Um, and so, yeah, I'm going to read from my, my book. Uh, this is a section a little bit, a little bit, um, and so sorry for any spoilers, but I think you'll survive. Okay. In the morning when I wake up, I do my exercises, sure that Max will be back at any moment, maybe with Rosanna, ready to talk. I want to show them that I'm serious, that I'm working hard, I'm ready. I run wind sprints back and forth across the worn rug. I do my makeup, wiping it off and starting over again and again until it's flawless. I'm too nervous to read. I sit on the couch, waiting for Max and Rosanna for at least a full hour, trying my best not to move. I want them to find me perfect. I do my planks, I tan, I make espresso in a metal pot on the small stove. In the afternoon, I run more wind sprints. I go to the kitchen and take inventory. I have half a head of celery, three slightly floppy carrots, two small jars of chia seeds, wax, and a a packet of dried seaweed. I remember an article where Rosanna discussed how to cook with chia seeds. She stands beside me in the kitchen, her voice an encouraging chirp. It feels so indulgent, but it's great for you. They're hydrating, super high in vitamins, fiber, and all kinds of good stuff. Definitely one of my go-to healthy snacks. I measure out a tablespoon of seeds and leave them to soak until they swell with liquid, a sticky mass of black and gray goop. It is one of the most unpleasant things I've ever forced down my throat. Viscous, slimy, tasteless. I drink it with a series of short and painful gulps and smile like she smiles in the pictures. I see her there beside me, smiling back. So simple and so good, I say to the empty room. The sky goes dark, and I give up on Rosanna. Still, I wait for Max. Still, he doesn't come. I run out of food on the third day and decide to try the door. Maybe Max isn't planning on coming back at all. 
Maybe he's abandoning me here, like an unruly animal left on the side of the highway. Before I leave, I go through Rosanna's handbags. There are wallets in some of them, gift certificates, memberships, passes, unactivated platinum cards, crumpled handfuls of cash in the pockets of the coats softened by her sweat. I put all the money I can find in a small leather clutch and dress myself in Rosanna's most ordinary-looking clothes. Maybe I can find her house somehow. Go to her directly, plead my case. I stand behind the door for a long time, getting my nerve up. I know I'm already close to the edge. If Max discovers that I have left without his permission, even for a minute, even to just get food, fully intending to come back, this will all be over for me. My contract will be terminated. I will be sent somewhere far away. I will never meet Rosanna. I will never see Max again. I rest my hand on the wood, feeling it warm and grow slick behind the, beneath my palm, weighing the two paths in my head. I think of Rosanna, how disappointed she will be at me and Max for failing her, how angry she will be that I let her down. I think of how much progress I've already made, of my future self, my beautiful self, how I will get another face after this that belongs to me alone, not Rosanna's face, but a new face, a dream face, even more beautiful, more perfect than Rosanna could ever be, because it will be constructed from the purity of thought. It's worth it, I tell myself, it has to be. This is a test. Max is testing me. And if I open the door, which I am sure is unlocked this time, I will fail. If I want to stay, I will have to prove my consistency to him. I will have to wait. I take one breath, another. I picture Rosanna's smiling face, her standing in front of me, my mirror. I let my hand fall from the door. I take the money out of the clutch and redistribute it through the apartment, hidden underneath the small refrigerator, stuffed into the pillowcases, rolled up and tucked deep into a jar of kosher salt, just in case. I know what Max is capable of now, the depths of his neglect. After that, there's only black coffee and water until the sun sets. I should stay still, conserve my energy. It seems important that I still do my exercises, although every moment makes my body feel like it's about to break into a million tiny pieces. I get through a set. I move slowly. My makeup is slightly less than perfect. I have to force myself to wipe it off and start again. I am so tired, but I am here. When Rosanna comes back, I want her to see my devotion. I picture the way her face will light up seeing me. That horrible blank sadness gone. At night, I crumble half a chicken, half a chicken bouillon cube I discovered tucked away in the back of the pantry into a cup of hot water, a trick from my foster care days to keep the hunger pains at bay. It works. I sleep. It is four days until I see Max again. Four times the parrots fly noisily out of the courtyard in the morning. Four times they return at night. It is sort of a relief that I can still do this, that there is still a way for me to hold on to and calculate time, to keep it from slipping past me in an undifferentiated stream. So I count, I wait, I wait. On the fourth day, my patience is rewarded. Max comes alone, carrying a gold takeout bag. It is noon, and I am sitting on the couch in my close-to-perfect makeup, hands folded in my lap. I have not consumed a single bite of solid food for almost two days now. I am shaking, I think, from the coffee. When I hear the door open, I don't turn my head. I am determined not to move, not even to breathe too loudly. Everything is normal, I think. Everything is fine. Max goes into the kitchen and unpacks the bag, placing tiny dishes on a wooden tray. There is wild mushroom soup, lobster ceviche, crispy Brussels sprouts and black cod, spicy tuna hand rolls, a tiny box with a little round cake and a scoop of melting ice cream tucked inside just like a ring. All Rosanna's favorites. She must have picked them out just for me. A way of saying sorry for everything she's put me through. From the corner of my eye, I watch him, my mouth watering. I want everything so badly. He brings the tray and sets it on the table. I do not move until he tells me to. Here, he says, an embarrassed tenderness in his voice. Eat. 
I thought you might want something special. I got this just for you. Your favorite. All your favorite things. We, I think. I force myself to eat slowly, as if he's never left, as if I'm not hungry at all. This is just another meal. Everything is fine. I am in control, and I want him to see that. I even leave a few scraps behind, although I want so badly to reach in my fingers and wipe the bowl clean, lick out every last dab of the sauce. It is almost too much. I feel sick, afraid that I will vomit the over-rich meal back up, betray the frailty of my body. When I finish, he clears away the plates, and as he passes, lightly strokes the back of my head. I'm sorry, I say, not looking at him. I look out towards the window where the sun is shining bright, almost too bright to look at directly, thinking of the distance to the street. I can hear the cars passing, life going on outside without me, without Rosanna, and I know what I have to do. Max, I'm so sorry, I say. Good, he says. I'll do it, I say. A silence. He says nothing, just keeps stroking my hair, his eyes wandering vague around the dirty corners of the room. It's too late, I think. He's here to tell me the bad news. It's over. Rosanna has lost her, lost her faith in me. Please, I say. I know I was wrong. I know it's what she wants now. I'll do anything she wants me to do. I trust you, Max. I'll do anything you say. Max puts his arms around my shoulders and squeezes me lightly, paternally, giving my back a little pat. In his arms, I can feel how fragile my body is, even after just a few days of deprivation. My bones seem to float loose. I picture them floating in the bloody quiet inside. I picture the doctor slipping his fingers beneath my skin, as easy as dipping a bucket into the dark water of a well, rearranging me until I am perfect, building my body like carving a statue, pulling beauty from a flawed stone. I'm sorry too, Max says. I want so badly to believe him. A doctor comes to the house in street clothes. He's the first person I've seen in months. Two months, maybe? Close to three? My orders are clear. I will not speak to him. Even if asked a question, I will not say a word. But he won't ask me any questions. He knows the rules, too. We have paid him a tremendous amount of money. He will forget what he has seen. Max has told him that there are certain threats against Rosanna's life, that she needs me for protection. I wonder what is more true, that, as the doctor thinks, she needs protection from some outside threat, that my body is a blind, a duck decoy, or what Max has told me, that I am her mirror, her charm, absorbing all harm, that she needs protection from herself. What does she picture when she pictures me? What needs of hers do I fulfill? Soon, I think, I will know. When I have her face, I will know what she needs. I will be completely trusted then. They will tell me what I need to do. I cannot speak, but I can look, and even looking is overwhelming. The doctor's presence in my small room feels like an unbearable violation. He is older than Max, with a reassuringly placid air, his forehead as smooth and glossy as a frozen lake. Everything about him is icy white and still. His hair, his skin, his suit. He nods politely when he sees me, letting his eyes slide slick over my body of professional detachment. Please, he says, remove your clothes. I look to Max, who nods, his face tight. This makes me feel uncomfortable, too. Somehow I find this reassuring, though. I keep my eyes on him, pretending the doctor isn't here, <coughs> concentrating on our common goal. I take off my clothes. This time, Max doesn't look away. Neither does the doctor. I look at them, but they don't look back. Even Max doesn't meet my eyes. To him, right now, I am an imperfect object, nothing more. They walk around me in tight circles, discussing. You're right, the doctor says. The resemblance is uncanny. Where did your team manage to find her? Oh, says Max, we have our ways. The doctor nods. And a mute, he says. Extraordinary. Not that this is the strangest thing I've seen in my line of work. Not the strangest by far. Max catches his eyes, giving me a conspiratorial little smile. Not strange, he says. Lucky. 
The doctor has a pen, and he uses it to make little marks all over my body, dotted lines like borders on a map. I'm glad that he uses a pen. It spares me the indignity of his fingers. We could taper her jaw, says the doctor. Shave a little bit of bone off here and here. He marks the lines on my face, making the same shapes I do every morning with my contouring makeup. I can feel the marker catch and snag on my loose skin. Nothing drastic, the doctor says. Maybe narrow the bridge of her nose a little, shave off the slight bump. He makes two lines, here and here. I stand as still as I can, look past them. The cheekbones are a little flat, says Max. And I think her breasts are too large, uneven. Good eye, says the doctor. Both are easy to fix. A little Botox wouldn't be a bad idea. Best to get these things started when they're still young. Preventative measures, you know? I cannot eat for six hours before the surgery. But it feels like my stomach has shrunk in Max's absence, growing small and hard, and I find that I do not mind. I drink sweet things, water, tea. Max sits up with me for all six hours. He reads to me as much as I want him to. Books Rosanna has lent me. My favorite is a folk tale I make him read three times over. A girl guides herself out of a dark wood by the firelight of a magic skull, burning her enemies to ashes with the bright glare of its gaze. At the end of the story, the girl returns safely to a faraway city. She weaves beautiful cloth with her flame-scarred hands. She tells no one what happened to her, how she got her scars. Max sits beside the bed and strokes my hand, gentle. I do not move the way or flinch. He is the one to hold the mask over my face as the doctor watches. He holds my hand. He tells me to breathe in and count down from ten. I don't feel drowsy at all. It's not working, I think. I wake up in the dark in a stranger's body. My face feels puffy and swollen. My breasts are tender, hollow, as though I've been nursing some infernal being who has sucked me dry. My body lists like a sinking ship, woozy with anesthesia and helpless emptiness, sick with longing and hunger and loss. I ache. I can't breathe through my nose. The nostrils are stopped up thick with cotton wads. Blood drains down my throat when I tilt my head. My mouth feels impossibly dry, lips cracked as they crack in winter, back when I lived through winters before. Someone, Max, has propped me up on a stack of pillows, left a carafe of water and a small bowl of something that looks like porridge on the bedside table. The room is dark. I am alone. And then I see them, sitting on the windowsill, their heavy heads drooping like the heads of a sleeping animal, a narrow planter full of white Miltonia orchards. Rosanna's favorite flower. Rosanna's been here while I slept. Maybe she's still here now, on her way out the door, making her way silently down the hall. I have to see her. I drag myself out of bed, legs shaking like the legs of a baby deer, that precious, that vulnerable, new. I feel I am in a quiet house in the eye of a storm, there around me heavy and still, in the few long moments before the sky breaks open and the wind sucks down the walls. I sway. I stumble. I right myself and walk to the door, turning the knob like I'm in a dream, sleepwalking. As in a dream it opens, I say it out loud to myself just to be sure. The door is unlocked. In the quiet, my whisper cracks the air like a whip. My jaw aches. I find myself standing in the open mouth of the doorway like a woman on the edge of a skyscraper, preparing herself to leap. My body is heavy and strange, with new aches all over, pumped full of fluid. I watch the world outside swim into existence through my drug-fueled gaze. I step over the threshold towards the pole of Rosanna, the night. The street outside is empty but for the dead palm fronds that litter the road. Street lights extinguished, everything dark. I feel the wind cutting through with my tight layer of bandages, the light painful pressure of air on my new bruised skin. Santa Anna, Max had said before, when the wind blew all night and gave me strange dreams. The air crackles with a fierce electricity that makes the fine hairs on my arms stand on end. 
The silk of my thin nightgown spark with static. I feel alive with it, dangerous. I'm something strange and raw and new, newborn. I'm something that has never been before in this world or any other. I cross the street to an empty lot where the ground drops away to nothing, the city spread out below. There are houses on either side of me, clinging to the cliff like great birds poised before flight, perched like I am on the edge of everything. I stand on the curb and look down over the city, the darkness spilling out from the foot of the mountain like the hem of a black dress, darkness for miles and then light again, sparkling to the vague shapes of islands in the far darkness of the sea. I look to the bruised purple sky for stars. I feel the bruised tenderness of my stranger's body. I scream and I scream and I scream into the wind until my new face cracks with strength. <laughs> I left my water upstairs. You don't want to read longer than that. So um, I just wanted to catch a few of you up who might not have read the flap copy or the introduction to the book, which is uh, Emily's novel is about a young woman who's plucked out of obscurity in a small town in the Midwest or somewhere in America. And uh, a mysterious man named Max asks her to come to LA and impersonate a famous actress who has gone into hiding named Rosanna. So that's who's, um, what's going on there is she's um, holed away in an apartment and sort of becoming this um, uh, actress who's sort of hidden from view. Um, so before you started to read, you kind of stole my opening line, which is like, I read this as a short story, which I literally remember nothing about except sitting over in that cafe and kind of being a little confused, not going to lie. <laughs> but I do read a lot of stuff. So, um, But this book is about obsession, and it's about, you know, um, Max's obsession with Rosanna, and uh, the, the character, the narrator doesn't have a name, and I cannot tell you how difficult it is going to be to discuss a book with a character who doesn't have a name. <laughs> but, um, and like Rosanna uh, too. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the, the narrator, the protagonist. Um, so it's a book about their mutual obsession. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about your obsession because um, I know when I first met you, you were writing a book about your aunts in France in you know, the 30s or something. Um, it's a very different book. Yeah, a very different book. And you worked with that. And I know you wrote that sometime in grad school and your various iterations of grad school. But this story seemed to have occupied you um, for a really long period of time and I was kind of shocked that this was the book you wrote so how did the process go of you know taking that short story as what you used as a grad school application and then turning it into a novel yeah uh, it's actually this story it was even weirder than that it started out as a piece of flash fiction so <laughs> I, I know I know this is not knowing when to stop uh, <laughs> about I guess right before I read this, really about three or four years ago, some friends and I decided to do this experiment where we were going to write a piece of flash fiction every single day and send it to each other. Um, Michelle Myers, who I think is somewhere here. There she is. Hello. Hi, and uh, our friend Ishmael, <laughs> who is not here because he does not live here. And we were going to do this every day. And, of course, we gave up after like a week, yes, um, as you do. But I wrote this tiny little thing that was about this woman going to a party. And have you ever like had to go to a party that you didn't want to go to? And you're like... Oh, I don't want to go to this party. So she's at the party. Never. Someone has hired her. I know. She loves. She loves it. <laughs> she's at a party, and you discover that someone else has hired her to go to this party for them that they didn't want to go to. And then she sort of realizes, oh, wait, everyone else at this party has also been hired to go to this party that no one wanted to go to. So I don't know. I started thinking more and more about that, about how 
fragmented the nature of self is and how there are these versions of ourselves that we send out into the world to go to the party that we don't want to go to, to you know, meet um, maybe a relative that we have a difficult relationship, to go to a job interview. There's all these different versions of yourself that you're sending out. And so I got really interested in the idea of making that dynamic literal you mm-hmm. know, and exploring that. And so, I mean, obviously you must have written a whole bunch of other things in the time that you were, you know, studying the art of fiction. Um, But this story just stayed with you the whole time? Yeah, and I I think that I just kept trying to figure out a way to make it work as a a story, and I couldn't. So it just got longer and longer and longer, and it was, like, outlined on my bedroom wall like a serial killer for a really long time. So that was... uh, it was not a good look, but... Uh, oh, like you were the serial killer. I was the okay. serial killer in the scenario, yes. I think I read a different book. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, I am not from Los Angeles. I am from Brooklyn. Um, I had the misfortune to write a book about L.A. and have to defend it all the time, like why I was allowed to do this. But you're from L.A., you know, and um, you wrote a book about L.A. that is written from a stranger's point of view, which is a really odd choice for someone who knows, not a bad choice. I, I'm just really intrigued by this idea to write about the thing you know really well from the perspective of someone who doesn't know it so how did like was that conscious or like where did that come from because I would like to write about LA like I know what I'm talking about see I feel like that's such an interesting perspective because for me I think everyone is a stranger in Los Angeles you know because the city and I love I love Los Angeles anyone can tell you this is like a place that is so close to my heart and if you read the book you'll see there's like so much of the city in there so many real places that have been transformed and so many real things but it's so vast. It's almost unknowably vast. You know, like, more people live in L.A. County than in all of Australia is something I've heard. I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds true. It's really, really big. I'm so good at Google that one. Yeah, I know. I'm, like, just dying to you know. You can drive for, true. like, hours in any direction, and it's all L.A. And so we all find our little kind of amoeba section where we can, like, spread out and we get to know our neighborhoods really well and the people around us. But it's just all of these strange cities coming into contact with each other. That's something I love about it. Um, it's interesting you said that this is a novel where um, lots of Los Angeles is transformed. Um, I felt oddly that this was an incredibly, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way at all, I felt this was an incredibly claustrophobic novel where we rarely <laughs> went outside and saw Los Angeles. Like, So I felt like you did this weird like reverse engineering of LA, which is this, as you just described, this giant expansive place. We've all flown into LA. It's giant and it's spreading out and there's a million things and I don't even understand what like, what's going on. Like, <laughs> is Culver City part of LA? Where do I live? Like, I live somewhere in the middle of the city in this neighborhood that's like, has eight names. Um, but your book is sort of the anti-LA novel where it doesn't try to describe Los Angeles at all. It's very much stuck in this apartment. Um, so I think it's funny that you said that, like, it's this reimagining of L.A. where I just think it's sort of, like, turning Los Angeles into a black hole. Yeah, well, I mean, isn't Los Angeles a black hole, right? I don't know. I'm not from here. Like, I'm not going to say that. Like, I will get killed if I say that. <laughs> well, I think a black hole is, is only a portal to another universe, right? right. And so in that sense, I, I think that, like I said, we all have these, like, really very prescribed versions of L.A. that are very, very small and very limited, but then there are these secret connections that, like, spread through these networks of people like everybody here. Hi, I love you all. Thank you. Most of I know most of you, and some of you I don't. Thank you for being here, even though I don't <laughs> know you. Especially the ones yeah. you don't know. Thank <laughs> them. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
But I feel like that sense of, of claustrophobia and isolation is a really big part of living in any city, but especially Los Angeles, because you can yeah. really be alone all the time if you want to. I mean, it is weird. Could, yeah. yeah you when I first, your house or your car or whatever it is. when I first moved here, I lived in Echo Park and like, I lived on top of this hill and like, you could go, it's weird. They're in the middle of the city, but you could go for like five days without seeing another person. Yeah. And if you could somebody was, well, you, I guess you could just do not anywhere in your yeah. house. But like, even if you walk around on the street, yeah. nine times out of ten, you're the only person. You don't have neighbors, there, yeah. yeah. Um, it's just such an um, interesting view of the city you grew up in, which is so like, you know, and I know your father works in film and all this stuff. And there's like this, like, you know, as an outsider, you think that's just so exciting and dynamic. But the novel is this sort of like very sort of, it's like a folie a deux between Max and Rosanna. And it's like, Rosanna, Ros- I'm sorry, am I saying Rosanna? Rosanna, okay. Rosanna. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's in the eye of the beholder, right? Okay, well, um, you know, um, it's funny. When I first came to L.A., I was visiting a friend, and he lived across the street. And um, I didn't know this until recently. And I stayed in his apartment. And when I read your book, I imagine it's like that sort of very hot L.A. building across the Those brick like building. like apartment building. Yeah, right there. And when I read this book, I'm like, that's so the apartment. Although that's I know it's so set funny. in the hills. Because my mom said the same thing about an apartment that she knows in the Hollywood Hills that was a little bit closer to being the real place. That I was like, maybe you've watched by it. Do you guys know the Cretona apartment buildings in the Hollywood Hills? Yeah. So it's sort of inspired by that and all those weird Moorish apartment buildings that are like scattered through these like really ritzy neighborhoods. And there's this rumor that when they were built, the reason that they're out there is that there were secret tunnels connecting them to the homes of celebrities. And that's where they put like, oh, like the dirty little secrets or whatever. They keep them in these apartment buildings. And I thought that was such a crazy idea that you could be, you know, like in love with this celebrity or whatever and you'd be in this tiny little space. Yeah, didn't gangsters have like things where they could like pop into different like, yeah, bars? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the there's still and... yeah, there's all those uh, underground tunnels in downtown that you can right. Still that's access. what I was thinking. Yeah, they're all uh, over. It's funny that you said that about your mom trying to say like imagining the apartment was somewhere she sort of recognized because one of the things I like about love about this book is. We know nothing about these characters. And in order to write a book in which you know nothing about the characters, I would suggest the author knows a tremendous amount that she's <laughs> hiding. Um, we can talk about that in a second. I should hope you do. But, um, well, I can't tell This is like the writer. Yeah, in me, the writing teacher in me is like, I hope you really know what Max's name is um, or his last name. But, um, but the genius of this book is that everything and everyone is a cipher. And you're just like feeling... Max is feeling the fake Rosanna, the narrator, with his own ideas. And then she starts to fill him, inflate him with her ideas. And like in the world you've created, your mother sees, you know, this apartment building, I see that apartment building. There's this lack of specificity which allows us to sort of inhabit this world. Was that sort of an intention? Yeah, that's something I'm very, very, very interested in is the idea of space in fiction and and just in general in creative works. I mean, I'm, um, I always think of that that really famous like Zen Cohen about emptiness being the source of form, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like the it's this the hole at the center of the circle that makes it a wheel and there's a space at the inside of the jar that makes it a jar. And I think that like by creating this space for the reader to sort of flow into, that to me is such an interesting project because then the act of reading becomes an act of collaboration. That's I'm the kind of reader I am, so I'm making you guys do a little more work. I mean, <laughs> and like, at the risk of like beating a well-worn cliche to death, what better example than like an actress mm-hmm. who is everything to everybody but nothing specific to herself, Absolutely, you know? So yeah. at the center of this book, you've kind of picked the perfect vessel 
or jar <laughs> for this is um did okay I gotta ask did you have a specific actress in mind I'm gonna ask like the dumb I questions I know no I know does I should, everyone I ask that have, no actually I haven't had that before I should probably think of like a fake person so maybe I'll take suggestions and be like oh yeah it was this person what I kind <laughs> of liked about Rosanna Rosanna whatever is that um she's sort of that at that moment in the career that I'm sort of interested in where an actress decides not to act anymore. She's like a melange for sure. But yeah. also like decides to like, like Gwyneth Paltrow to like do products, like no longer <laughs> acting, but like has gone into become a, a you know, a, a business. And like, that's why it's sort Maybe of Maybe she's possible. like a little bit of a trashier Gwyneth. You know? like, <laughs> but I like, like the Walmart Gwyneth Paltrow. I was like reading the whole book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean her makeup's like in the drugstore, so she's not. Hey. <laughs> she's not going to be <laughs> We all got to make a fuck. Listen, I agree. But I like, this idea because I was sort of very worried as the book went on because you know it's my job to worry about plot like oh my god is it, it, like if she was gonna have to act okay. and I was like is she gonna be like forced to be in a movie like this can't happen but it's like that sort of moment where you know her definition as an actress like ceases to be and she's sort of become this like amalgamation of like products and like appearances yeah and then it's almost like the by acting, she would sort of undermine her creation of this reality. It's almost like she's this extreme, extreme method. There is this moment in the, later in the book where she has an interview, and she's coached, and she's really prepped, and she goes in the interview thinking, okay, this is what this person needs to say. This is the plan. And when she's trying to do that, it comes off as, like, really wooded and false, and she almost gets caught, but maybe she doesn't. Maybe she doesn't. I'm not going to tell you. I mean, you can probably guess. But <laughs> yeah, I like that interview because also, like, she – interviews the interviewer like it's like this moment of like you know she's no longer Rosanna she has this kind of idea of an individual it's like one of the two moments of individuality that sort of really jumps out um yeah it's like accessing this pure world of form where where this person exists it's really difficult to talk about a book in which you have these two characters um not that it just it's just hard to sort of describe without giving too much away but where you have two characters who we know nothing about like you know Max doesn't have a last name um, he is sort of you know, comes like a, comes out of nowhere, descends in the small movie theater, and you know which you can you describe so brilliantly. Um, I was reminded of the sticky movie theater in Brooklyn where I grew up. You know, <laughs> we all I was thinking of the new Beverly. You know, we all know that sticky. Like, oh my god, it's so dark in there. It's very there's dark. There's like no lights. In the Beverly. <laughs> Everything is like very soft. Yeah. It's a little, it's if it's sticky, alarming. it's my fault for spilling things because I can't see. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but and we realize we it's one of those tricks that you pull really well. It's like. We know nothing about Max, but we've sort of trusted him because we want the story to get going. Yeah. You know, like, let her follow this guy. But and I think she's in the same position, you know? If somebody shows up and they're like, hey, what's up? Your life sucks. Let me help you and give you a lot of money. You're going to be like, I'm not going to ask too many questions about that, you know? Now, one thing that, you know, I discovered as I write is I have an idea and then I write about it and then I realize I know more and more about my characters and I know what they would do. Um I'm guessing that might have happened to you, but you don't reveal anything about these people. Yeah. So how much do you know you know, about Max? <laughs> um, I think a lot, and I think that there were definitely drafts of this book where a lot of that was just him coming out and being like, let me tell you about my drama, which oh. just doesn't, it's no. not so great, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like, hello, like, let me tell you about my horrible childhood or whatever, which is, you know, a great way to bond in real life, but in fiction maybe it gives too much away. And that's something that I really liked about Max is that he does have this enormous, enormous sadness. You know, he's an incredibly sad person. And this this figure of Rosanna, this, this person has almost become like his guiding light. And when she disappears from his life, he has to recreate her or else he's going to be destroyed. You know? 
I think you hit it so well that there was something up with him. I mean, we you know we were talking about it, but there's this moment in the middle of the book where someone, you know, says to fake Rosanna, like, just like raises an eyebrow at Max's mention, and I was like, oh, I missed it entirely. You know, I really thought this was, you know, going one way and it's going another way. Did you know that from the beginning that Max wasn't entirely on the level? Sorry, you, sorry, guys. Like, <laughs> Max is not entirely on the level. I mean, I think you could probably guess. I I think point. I'm a terrible reader. <laughs> I was like, what's going to happen? Like, maybe, like, I think he's trying to do the right thing here, you know? Well, I mean, I think in a sense that he is, and I think that he very much thinks of himself as a good person. Right. You know, I think that he, like I said, he's trying to recreate this dynamic that's intensely healthy and familiar to him in in the way that I think a lot of us, growing comfortable with an unhealthy dynamic, will seek to recreate it over and over and over again so that we can finally, like, get it right this time, you know? And I think he thinks what he's doing is an act of heroism in a way. Like, he's saving her by recreating her. I think it's an act of personal, like, yes. like he's saving himself. Yeah. <laughs> and how much do you know about her going forward? Did you know about her before Which the book started? <laughs> the, the one who's in the movie theater. There's too many of them, I know. It's, oh. it's like a hall of mirrors. It's like, you know, that the, the shooting again at the, the hall we know, The woman who's in the movie, the, yeah. the character. There's, yeah. one, there's only one of her, by the way. Yeah, it's not, like, it's not that confusing. Don't, <laughs> don't worry, you will not be confused. Yeah, I think it was a kind of similar thing. I think that it, it, I, what I knew about her was a lot more explicit and explicitly like tragic in a way that maybe is not as interesting because right. I think we get a few clues. Yeah. And definitely I think by the end of the book, you find out some pretty um, bad things have happened to this poor lady, but uh, yeah, not, I mean, but not, okay, but not like, not you, don't, like traumatizing. you don't sort of harp on it. Um, yeah. I mean, in the same way that, like I said, trauma tends to kind of poke up from underneath the surface and all we really see is the fin of the shark. We don't see this enormous beast, right? It's just, a little peak of it because sometimes I'm like entirely incapable of ri- original thought. I read a lot of like reviews of books that I'm going to talk to people about <laughs> just to see what other people think. Uh, that it makes one of us. I'm way too scared to oh, review. No, I mean not review, but you know, I just want to know like, w- and it's interesting that many people have s- mentioned different works of literature and movies that they thought you had drawn from or, I mean, not explicitly copied, but, like, things that were inspirational. I mean, for me, I, I just thought it was, you know, you. But, like, was there any, you know, was the, was there anything that in, um, you know, either literature or film that was a direct inspiration for? It's interesting because I think maybe not right off the bat, but I think in revision when you're moving through something, you begin to see, like, oh, there really are some echoes of, for example, Vertigo, something that gets brought up mm-hmm. a lot. And that is a movie that even though I wasn't consciously thinking about it when I was writing, had a tremendous impact on me. The first half that. of that film where she's Kim Novak is, like, transforming into this sort of dead woman, mm-hmm. the act of love is just like, God, it's one of the most unsettling things I've ever seen. And um, that moment where she decides to, like, yeah. to become her when she's counting the rings in the tree. You sort yes. of have that moment in here where, yeah, like, this yeah. is what... There's a few interesting moments here where she's sort of... It's so hard to do this well where you're, like, playing on both sides of the fence where she's her unnamed actress, and the unnamed narrator is herself, and then she's Rosanna. And there's a few moments where it gets confused. Yeah. But it's so well touched off where you always sort of pull it back but there, that is that Kim Novak moment where she's like this is where I was born and this is where I died and she's like in the sequoias or the, yeah. the redwoods yeah, um, like, is it hard to like keep track of who is who or <laughs> no not really I, oh. because I think she's always both do you know what I mean 
I think, oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I, I, I'm sorry. I um, no, it's fine. <laughs> I, mean, I just want to tell you to There's read so it. many ways to read a book, yeah, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And neither of them are wrong. I thought she was always herself. Yeah, I mean, I think that she is always herself, but I think she wants so badly to be this other person. There was this really profound act of ego, ego identification and like a, a pulling in or calling upon this person's powers. It's almost like a kind of channeling. You know? I felt so bad for her when she was like, and Rosanna's, Rosanna's going to come and I'm going to meet her. I'm like, lady, you have another thing coming. Like That was just for me the highest moment of delusion. I'm like, I don't think this is going to happen. Were you ever tempted to bring the two of them together? Absolutely, like, yeah. Like a Dostoevsky style. 100%. And then I just thought it was going to devolve into that Karl Marx, like the, the mirror machine. We just got so Marx pretentious with this. Oh my God. <laughs> like, it's a really fun book, Karl Marx. <laughs> no, I was picturing like Groucho Marx in front of the door yeah. being like, like that's, yeah. that's not, not going to be good. I was like, it's so fun to read a book where you're sort of hoping certain things happen. I was like, I really want to see that, but it would also be really bad. Yeah, I know what you mean. And that's definitely the temptation. I think that you, you can veer really, really close to the explicit, but you can't ever put your hand entirely in the fire, you know? Yeah. Huh. Um. But I mean, just to return to your early questions about inspiration, I think oh, yeah. probably the text that most directly inspired it is this book that I'm completely obsessed with called The Invention of Morel, which probably I've, I made a lot of you read. It's really good. Uh, and it's this book about this man that's basically on this island, and he's he's kind of looking into the past of the island and dreaming about accessing it, but he can't really. And, and that is something I was thinking about a lot when I was writing this book, not necessarily navigating this physical space, but navigating the space of desire, of wanting so badly to have another life that you can almost make it happen for yourself. You know? Were you ever tempted to make it happen? What do you mean? Like to make this all work out. I was kind of hoping it worked out. <laughs> yes, of course, because you know, you it's impossible not to get attached to your characters, you know? Like when I write I, I feel like I feel a tremendous uh obligation to them, you know? And I I really feel like they are in some way real and that I owe them happiness, you know? Not that I've created them, but they that owe I can, you like, happiness. They owe you happiness. And they've, they've given it to me, I suppose. You're all here. Yeah, right, it's, so. you know, it's really hard to write a book with two people in it because you get so sort of beholden to both of them, um, especially two people who are so, like, hollow at core. Yeah, yeah, but I think that that is also what draws them to each other is that they both have this profound lack of each thing that the other one can fill it. And, who among us has not either seen or experienced that dynamic in our own life when there's something inside us that we need and we turn to another, hoping that they can provide it. And of course, that's an impossible quest, you know? They certainly try. They in try. like an they epic scale. <laughs> One thing well, I, so do we all, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting that plastic surgery tomorrow. <laughs> um, one thing I really liked um, is, though this is a, I mean, it is a book of ideas. It's not like super, super, not a ton happens, but everything that happens is very interesting and it's really well thought out. And, um, you know, because there's so few large, there's so, there are lots of, there's a few very big moves. So there's so much weight put on them. You're very excited for these things to happen. Um, so like every move that they make together, Max and fake Rosanna are, it's like, oh my God, she's going to leave the house. Like these, like you put mm -hmm. so much pressure on these moments and it's sort of, like almost like a pressure cooker, but you you sort of um, pop that balloon with these really cool specific details about LA stuff, like some, some <laughs> stuff you read, like this, you know, the the spicy tuna roll, and like I know I know that's such a dumb example, but you know there's these moments of like levity of the sort of like obsessive stuff they do that must have been super fun. Yeah, hundred percent, and I think that that 
the the physical details of this world is something that I'm so interested in exploring, and I really love the idea of creating yourself not only through this act of performance, but also through like acquisition, through what you eat, what you wear, whatever. And that's something that is, I think, fairly common. Obviously, we all have this ideal version of ourselves that we're trying to enact through our external performance. But like to have that be so literal, to think maybe I can literally change the physical composition of my body by eating exactly what this person would eat and wearing their clothes and, and smelling like them, and maybe I can transform into them by commanding these small, knowable details. It's funny yeah. because um, I had a writing residency at the house of the poet James Merrill for a long time, and yeah. his house was a museum. And there's always this sort of existential question, like, at what, like, like are they going to fix the toilet? Because they couldn't really fix the toilet oh. or the bed because, it, like, it wouldn't be his toilet or bed. So they couldn't well, put a new toilet in or a new bed. We had to fix Jimmy Merrill's toilet or bed. Like, and, and like, finally the plumber came. He's like, I have taken so many parts out of this toilet that nothing original remains, Whoa. but we're going to keep going with the idea that this is James Merrill's toilet. I'm like, I don't think he would Jeez. care. <laughs> but like sort of your character is doing the same thing. Yeah. It's like, at what point are you no longer, you know, yourself? Well, I mean, we do that in our own bodies, right? Yeah. Like if you think about cellular death and what is like every seven years or something, you're like a totally different guy. So like, who's to say that she isn't? Yeah, who's no, I was, person, yeah. Really? yeah. Maybe she really is Rosanna. Perhaps, perhaps yeah. she is. Maybe she made it happen for her. I don't know. Yeah. Um, let's turn it. So this is like your home crowd. And, you know, I know you. Um, I'm sure they have more questions than I do. And I'd, why don't you guys ask some questions? Yeah, ask me some questions. Thanks. I mean, I have a million more, but, you know. That's true. That's okay. <laughs> That's fine. That usually works that way. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Carrick. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's an amazing real-life example, definitely. And I, I think that that one is so interesting because it's this act of mirroring and wish fulfillment, but to transform yourself into someone that's so damaged, and, and it's almost like yeah. the opposite, from to come from someone that was in a relative position of like power and security, and then to transform yourself into someone immensely vulnerable to solicit aid. So I think that's a really, really interesting question. And I think the morality there is a lot um, fuzzier because if you're transforming yourself into someone with more power, obviously, then that's like an act of aspiration. But what is it? Is it, is it I guess it's appropriation to transform yourself into someone with less power. And I think that's something that is, um, is really interesting, the ethics of transformation and the ethics of pretending. Yeah, that's a really good question. And a great answer. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Hi. I was wondering, can you tell us a bit about your process That's a really good question. Can everyone in the back hear the question? So Are questions about process and whether Emily has a schedule and right. Yeah, um, I'm I'm actually really uh, controlling about my schedule. I think uh, normally what I do is I, I wake up in the morning and I read in bed for like as long as I can. Um, which is great. And then I try to write at least a thousand words before I do anything else, like every day. That's my goal. Um, and sometimes I do it and sometimes I don't do it. But just to like have that raw material like flowing through constantly is really great. And when I'm writing, I really think of it as like almost an act of channeling. Like I think a lot about the the infinite nature of the universe, right? And how everything that can happen is happening right now. And so I just sit down and to take the pressure off myself, I think, okay, I'm just going to write what's happening somewhere else, you know, and I try to, try to find out what that is. 
but yeah, in terms of how the idea, I, I think that it really came from the idea of um, social anxiety and kind of externalizing yourself as a way to cope with feelings of being less than or feelings of, of being nervous in a particular situation that we've all, I think, dealt with, right? But then to take that to an extreme and imagine what it would be like if you really could just divest yourself of all of your obligations and make someone else do them and just stay at home and, you know, watch television or whatever, <laughs> which is very tempting, of course. Anybody else? Um, if I understand correctly, um, you, you, this was a short, you had sort of formed a short story that you ended up expanding into a novel. Like bigger and I, Yeah, and I was wondering how, how you do that, because I would imagine a short story does have the bones of the story. How did you expand it by, you know, complicating the narrative and putting in obstacles? And I'm just wondering if the... That's another really good question. I think it's like the Big Bang. Like, I was like, I didn't think I was going to turn it into a novel. I was just like, okay, it just needs to be a longer story. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, okay, definitely this needs to happen. And then this needs to, oh, wait, but then what about this? And then so gradually I was like, wait, this is like, I think an early draft of this is something like 500 pages. It's too much. <laughs> just kept getting bigger, bigger, bigger. And then at that point I was like, okay, I'm clearly writing a novel and I need to get this under control. You only figured like... out at 500 pages. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a small learner. What can I say? <laughs> the story is very long. I'm a little obtuse. <laughs> But yeah, and then but it is a really interesting question. I sort of have the same question too, because a short story. I can't write short stories. Like I've written one. I think that's what I've learned too. Is that I also cannot write short stories. Oh well, uh, clearly, clearly, if you're on a yeah, five hundred exactly. page short story. <laughs> yeah, it is a different structure, and there's like this control in a short story. Yeah. But I do see the short story in this book. That's I see how this story that it not shouldn't be, but I can see how you could do this as a short story, and I think it's a really interesting exercise to sort of see, you know, there's a few moves that could make it a short story that you would lose a lot of 300 pages of yeah. good stuff. But yeah, it's, I can see that. Yeah, definitely. I think maybe someone else could have made it a really good short story, but my brain is not yeah, that good at that. So. Yeah. Anyone else? Hi. <laughs> Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'm I'm just glad that you relate to that. Killian and I have made up a lot of stories together over the years, mostly about a very mischievous cat named Mr. Pickles who I tried to work into the story, but he didn't quite. You'd be fit. an awesome life um, coach too. You, <laughs> no, you don't. You don't want to get on Mr. Pickles' house. I'll tell you. But you don't yeah. like your life. Start a new one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just start it over. But of course, I think that we all have these moments of feeling so frustrated because it really is hard to be a person, isn't it? It's so hard. It's so hard. You but have to get I, up every day and you have to do stuff and you have to be in the world and that's very tiring. And but what I sort life. of like about your narrator <laughs> is that she doesn't really have a hell of a lot of reason for doing what she does. And I think that if you spend a lot of time up front explaining her motivation, it would ruin the book. Like, she... You know, I mean, you don't really have to twist her arm. It's not like something so awful is happening to her. It's not like she's, like, in debt or on the run. She just does it. And I think to belabor that issue would call into question a lot of the motivation of her, of the book. Like, she just sort of 
goes along with this. And I think that's sort of really important because if you were to interrogate her motivation, then the whole thing would come crumbling down. Because we don't need to know why she's doing it. Absolutely. And I think that she is someone who's very rudderless. And when I started writing this book, when I I guess wrote this short story that turned into this book, I was like 23 and I just moved back to LA from Vietnam. And I was like, what the F am I doing? I'm not going to swear, but like, what's going on? I'm a baby, you know? Like, I'm, we all remember this time in your life when you're like, oh my God, how do I be a person? How do I figure it out? And I think maybe if somebody had came in and was like, here, here is your life. This is what you do. This is how you be a successful person. Here's a bunch of money. I'd be like, great, I'm, I'm done. Um, so I think it is very alluring in that way, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of that compromise of like, here's your life, but you can't live it. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. Here's your life, but it belongs to somebody else. Very sad. Yeah. Oh. Perfect. At least it's not in three parts. I think that's really, really interesting. I think it's a little bit more of the former. Like, I think this it, she was taking the process of physical transformation so seriously that, of course, her internal landscape would also change. And um, I think this is almost something like when we embark on a process of self-improvement, like however extreme, maybe changing our diet or getting a haircut or whatever, it usually accompanies an emotional shift, right? Like there's a famous, like, you break up with somebody and you cut your hair kind of a thing. Or like your New Year's resolution is to get in shape, not because you just want to get in shape, but also because you're going to be that kind of person. You're going to be the strong person and you're going to get up at, you know, five in the morning and run around the reservoir or whatever. I'm not saying I said I was going to do that this year and didn't do it. Um, (laughs) But I do think that these things are so so closely interlaced and I think that the separation of body and mind is really illusory you know I agree with you on that well yeah what do you think well this book obviously I'm not took you a long time to be not to write but to sort of articulate from the flash fiction to the short story (laughs) to whatever happened while you were studying the art of fiction to this book I'm going to ask the classic wrap-up question. I'm just going <laughs> to, what are you working on now? Oh, my God. You guys are really I was excited. trying to deflect from that fact <laughs> that, no, that I was love it. coming. Um, I'm, I'm working on something else that I tried to write another short story. I finished this. I was like, great. Now I'm going to write a short story. And now it's also, I think the last draft is like 600 pages. So that didn't work. Um, and it's kind of, it's like a spooky existential horror story about this plague that causes women to lose the ability to speak. And this young couple buys an abandoned summer camp in the Angeles National Forest to try to escape it. And, and it's not good, you guys. It does not go well for them. So <laughs> That sounds awesome. Keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> um, okay, unless you guys have any more questions, I'm sure Emily will sign all of the books you're going to buy. Oh, wait, there's one question. Oh, yeah.
I never worked on this novel. I just read their shorts. I worked on this other novel. <laughs> Emily, I don't know what happened to that. I um, loved it. Actually, that's a funny story. It, uh, my car got broken into and my laptop got stolen. Oh. And I hadn't backed it up anywhere, so I thought it was gone. And then... Uh, that's not a funny story. No, it is. Just wait. Just wait. Yeah, it's a great about story a year, for you. <laughs> no, there's a happy ending. About a year later, I got a Facebook message in my like alternate Facebook inbox. You know, you have that one. You never check and there's like a bunch of creeps or whatever. But it was from this guy and he was like, hi, I live in Colombia. I bought a laptop at a flea market and I found your novel. And I'm a poet and I know how important this is. Do you want it back? And I was like, I'm good. You didn't want it back? I don't want it. But you know what? I found out after I told the story to someone else is that my loving partner, Hari, had a copy of it the whole time, so it's still there. So maybe someday <laughs> I will go back to it. That's a know. great story. Thank you all for being here. I love you very, very much, even if I don't Thank know you. you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and also, if, if you buy the book, I think they give you this nail polish. Oh, yeah. There's Rosanna nail polish in the real world, too, you guys, not in the drugstore. And let's thank Ivy. Let's Yay! thank her. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Congratulations, Emily. Congratulations. You. Thank you for having me. Um, we're very happy to have you. Did, did they very, tell very you happy. that I uh, used to fund my high school literary magazine by holding a bake sale out front of Skylight? All right. So thank Come you for that, circle. too. Oh, yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.